Today for our message, we are looking at this idea, as I mentioned earlier, the mighty, mighty pen. When it comes to determining our religious tradition, what makes something Christian? What is it that makes something distinctly Christian? You might say, oh, there's a set of beliefs and there's maybe moral convictions that come with that. Or, you know, maybe say, oh, there's a belief in God. Or maybe we might even say, oh, there's, we have some sort of beliefs about Jesus. But there's different traditions, and they have different viewpoints on these moral convictions, belief in God and belief in Jesus. They're not Christian. So what is it, what is the one thing that ties the different Christian traditions together? And it is this. It is the reliance upon God and understanding God, people, and this world. The reliance, sorry, I think reliance upon the Bible in understanding God, people, and the world. It is, once again, the reliance upon the Bible. And certainly through different Christian traditions, there are different ways for interpreting the Bible. But in all Christian traditions, there is a connection to the Holy Scriptures that we have received. Today, as we look at the Scriptures, we are going to look and see what they do. We're going to look at them as a verb and not a noun. So we're going to see, how do we use the Scriptures? So we're not going to have a lot of descriptions of saying this and explaining that. It's, let's see what they do. And I think of it a little bit like this. Have you ever bought a snow shovel before? So when you, when you buy a snow shovel, does it come with an instruction manual? No, no, it doesn't. You, you just pick it up and you use it. And the, the more you use it, the better you get with that shovel, right? The, the better equipped that you get to use with that shovel. So the scriptures we're going to see are, are similar. We pick them up and we use them and we do something with them. And we get better and better at using the scriptures. The first thing that we're going to look at is that we're going to see that the scriptures point towards God. And we're going to be talking about a story that comes out of the book of Nehemiah. And so our Bible is divided up into two sections. We have the Old Testament, and then we have the New Testament. And so the New Testament is the story of Jesus. The Old Testament is everything before that. And Nehemiah fits into the Bible. It is the last historical portion of the Old Testament. And so this is going to take place about 400 years before Jesus. And Nehemiah, in this uh, story, what's taking place is that the people are facing a generational drift from the law. In other words, what the law that has been put forward to them, that Moses delivered to them, that we now have recorded in our very scriptures, in our Old Testament, they have for generations, move farther and farther away from what God wants them to do. And as the message comes through and they um, face that reality, we're going to find that the people are not so much in disobedience, but rather in ignorance. They simply didn't know what they should. And two key characters that we're going to find as we look at this passage on Nehemiah, the first is going to be Ezra. And Ezra is the spiritual leader of the people. And then he is also um, in partnership with Nehemiah, who is the political leader. He is the governor of the people. I'm going to be reading our first section of scripture today, which is going to be 
uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. It's going to be verse 1, and then I'm going to be moving ahead and going 8 through 10. Uh, a reminder for you that in your worship guide, uh, you have a printout like this that has the, the scriptures that I'm reading from. So if you want to follow along that way, you're welcome to do that. Um, if it's easier for you to just listen and hear, um, do that as well. Do what works for you. Um, let me read for us from, from Nehemiah. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving it meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drink and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the people, they encounter the book of the law of Moses, which we also know as the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. And these give out rules and regulations for the people to follow. And in this passage, what happens is that the book of the law is being read. And then in the verses that I didn't read between verses 1 and 8, what's taking place there is that the people are being very attentive and they're hearing what is being brought to them. And then they are told, they have this instruction told to them. It says, do not weep or mourn. So they've heard the law, and we, and we see their response is to begin um, this grief. They're weeping, they're mourning. So why are the people so upset? Let's give a little, little review of what's taking place, is that these people have a historical relationship with God. They have received God's great deliverance. That is part of their story. That is part of their identity, is this long-standing relationship with God. They also have this idea that the book of the law that they're hearing is something that they should be following, some rules and regulations that they should be adhering to them. They believe that it is God's direction for them. And then they come to this reality that they have faced a generational failure to follow the book of the law. And so what I mean by a generational failure is it's something that's been going on for a long period of time. And as these people come and recognize their own failure, it's not really their failure alone and by no means. It's the failure of the people who came before them and the people who came before and so on and so on. And so for literally generations before them, they've slowly stepped away from God. And now these people have this reality that all those slow steps of their ancestors have left them with this huge gap from where they should be. And they experience great grief. They're weeping and they're mourning. But then our story takes a shift. You would think the leaders there, Ezra and Nehemiah, might dig into that. They might, oh, we've got them. You know, they're emotional right now. This is the moment to go in for the kill shot. This is the moment to just like, we've got you here. Here's what God wants, and just deliver that blow. That's not what happens at all. Nehemiah says to the people, stop 
grieving. In verse 10, we see Nehemiah says, Go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Tell him, he says, hey, wipe away your tears. Not only just wipe away your tears, but you know what? Get out your party hat. Get out those little streamers. Get out those little noise. It's time to celebrate. We're going to read a verse together. And uh, this comes a little bit later than what I was reading. So we're going to read from Nehemiah 8, 12. And we're going to see this idea being presented uh, once again. This idea of a celebration that the people are experiencing. Let's read this together. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They celebrate because they now understand. They now realize what the scriptures are there for them. Interesting, as they come into this passage, we find these people celebrating. And it seems like they should be grieving. Why, why have they chosen the wrong emotion? And why do the leaders redirect them? Because of this. Because they didn't quite understand what the Bible was about. Ezra and Nehemiah got what the Bible was about for them, but these people didn't fully get it. They wanted to do the right thing, absolutely, and they wanted to follow God, but here's what they didn't get is that the scriptures they had were not about them. The scriptures were not about the people. The scriptures they have, the ones we have in our Old Testament, they're about God. They are about God. They tell us who God is, and they tell us what God is about, and they tell us what God's expectations for us. But it is scriptures that point to God. Our scriptures are pointing towards God. They are not pointing towards ourselves. Because you see, when we take the scriptures and we point them at ourselves, then we only see what wrong we've done. We only see our failures. We only see where, what we've done wrong. Because we realize how do we haven't lived up to God's standards, and none of us have. Certainly these people who have been on the back end of a generational move away from God haven't lived up to God's standards. But even the very best, even the very best fall short of what God has called us to. And when we go to the scriptures and we see only ourselves, we either find condemnation or some sort of self-justification, neither of which is helpful. But when we go to the scriptures, we go to learn about God. We go to see who God is. We find that we have a loving God, a God who loves us, a God who forgives us, a God who wants a relationship with us, despite our failures. The Bible not book of condemnation. It is not a book of instructions. It is the book of life. The reason it is the book of life is because it points to our life-giving God. When we see that God, we see a God who wants to be in relationship with us. You know, and it's a good thing the Bible points towards God because that's exactly what we need. But think about this. Think about this. You're lost in the woods somewhere. You're lost in the woods, right? You don't know where you are. You look, and everything looks the same. 
And you've got one tool, one tool to get you out, and it's a compass. A compass. As you look at that, you know what? You want that compass to point north, don't you? You want it to point somewhere. The one place you don't want that compass to point at is at you. Because if it points at you, you're never getting unlocked with that thing. You already know you're lost. I don't need it to tell me more about me. I need it to tell me something out there so that I can get out of this mess. Bible is the same thing for us. In our lives, we find that we're lost. We find ourselves in a mess of some kind. We're like, how do I get out of this? And the last thing we want to get when we hold the Bible is a Bible that just looks and talks about us. I'm the one who got me in here. I'm probably not the one who's going to get me out. We want a Bible that points us towards our God so that we can follow it to get out of the mess that we've created. This a good thing. Our Bible, it points towards God. Our Bibles are the book of life. Second thing we're going to look at today is that the scriptures point towards Jesus. And so we're going to be reading an account from Jesus, and this takes place um, as part of Jesus' uh, ministry. He is at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Um, Jesus has, um, in the story of Luke we'll be picking up, has just recently been baptized. And then after that, he is tempted, and so he's sent out um, with this great temptation. And following those two events, he has returned to his homeland. So he is in the land of Galilee. And so he has turned to his region, has begun to uh, establish himself as a religious leader, as a teacher of God's word. And so at this point in Jesus' life, he is about 30 years old. And we're going to pick up and we're going to find that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And so that is part of uh, the Jewish religion, which Jesus comes out of. That's the Old Testament that we have. And so there's the synagogue. And in the synagogue, one of the things that they would do is they would read portions of what we call the Old Testament. And then someone would provide instruction upon those. And that is exactly what uh, we are going to see Jesus do at this point. Um, a little bit of helpful um, background for this as well is that when we find Jesus, once again, it's important to understand that he's at the beginning of his ministry. And at this point in the book of Luke, we haven't seen any miracles by him. And so and he hasn't quite shown that full power of God that will be on display as we would move through the book of Luke. Let me read that story. It's going to come out of, for us um, out of Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressors free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. 
So th this event that we have here in the life of Jesus is, is a very normal thing. All parts of this are very square in the normal category. So he's in the synagogue, and he's teaching, which was his custom. And he's in a place that he knows. He's in his hometown of Nazareth. And then he reads um, from this passage, and this passage comes to us out of the book of Isaiah chapter 61. And so that's something that we have in our Old Testament. He's reading from part of, of our Bible, and he begins an explanation. All normal, normal, normal. We just check off the normal boxes. Until this thing. Until this thing. Uh, we're going to read this together. Here is going to be Luke 4.21. Let's read this together. Jesus began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All right. That is not normal. Because as Jesus says, that scripture is fulfilled they understood that scripture to be a, a reference to the Messiah, to the great deliverer that they were expecting that God would send them. And Jesus claims personal fulfillment. That's a big statement. The people, when he says that, he catches attention, right? You know, it's, it's just one of these kind of normal days, normal days, everything. And then all of a sudden he says, hey, by the way, everyone... That scripture, it's me. And you know what? It's getting fulfilled right now. And you all get to be a part of that. Hooray, right? And um, so just this incredibly bold thing that Jesus does. And one of the things uh, that we find when Jesus comes and uh, uses this reference from Isaiah 61 is that it actually provides a synopsis of what we're going to see from Jesus' entire earthly ministry. So that one little passage that he picks out is a great synopsis for us. So when he talks about the Spirit of the Lord is on me, we know that Jesus is empowered by the Spirit. And we actually saw that with Jesus' baptism in recent weeks, as the Spirit of God descends upon him. And he says, because he has anointed me. So he is saying, I have been specially set apart for this task by God the Father which is absolutely the case, and we see that verified in a couple of times. as literally the voice of God speaks to Jesus and said, hey, you're the one. I'm with you. Continues on that Jesus will proclaim good news to the poor. And that is indeed true. As we see Jesus provide hope for the hurting. Next, he says, he was sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover the sight for the blind and to set the oppressed that is a big thing of what Jesus does is he comes and he provides freedom for the enslaved. And when we talk of being enslaved, he provides freedom from our greatest enslavement, which is our own sin, our own death. Jesus says, I've got the freedom for that. And then he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor has this restoration for the future. Jesus says, hey, there's a future with me. If you come with me, there is a future indeed. And when it talks about the year of the Lord's favor, it's most likely referencing this concept out of the law called the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, every 50 years it was to be celebrated. Never was. But every 50 years... It was essentially like a redo on all of life's financial events. If you owe someone money, ding, done. 
cleared. Oh, if you had to use your land to barter something, you got it back. Whatever you've given out, whatever you've lost, it was returned to you. It was returned to your family. And it was to be called the year of Jubilee. Because with it, it was designed to be a way that no one could take advantage of you long term. There was always designed to be hope for your future. That's the way the law was set up. Every 50 years, it's kind of like once in life, once in life, you get a chance, a reset. Imagine how that would change the way we live, right? If once in life, we all had a reset. It was established, but never, never adhered to. And Jesus says, that's, that's what I'm bringing to you. I'm bringing this reset, this hope for the future, that God will restore this greatness in us. Then Jesus, through this, is making one of his boldest claims, saying that the scriptures, the Old Testament, they point towards me. Jesus is saying, that passage, it's pointing towards me. As we think of this bold statement on Jesus' half to say that the scriptures point towards him. The thing is, can he back it up? Can he back up that claim? It's a big statement, right? But can you do it? You know, it, it, it reminds me of Babe Ruth's called shot. What a, what a great story. If you don't know this story, you got to know this story, right? Uh, Babe Ruth's called shot. 1932 World Series, game three, fifth inning. Babe Ruth steps up to the plate. And as legend goes, as legends go, points out to the center field stands. And then he steps up to bat. Hits it right there. Deepest part of the park. Home run. Biggest stage. World Series. Babe Ruth, right? He said, I can do it. That's me. He said, I'm going to do it. And then he did it. And that's why we remember it so many years later. So the question with Jesus, he made a pretty big statement when he says, all those scriptures are pointing at me and they've been fulfilled. Can you back it up? Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how Jesus responds to that. Here, here's how he And so um, there, there's a story a little bit later in the book of Luke. And we, we talked a little bit before about John the Baptist, the one who baptized Jesus. And John said, hey, he's the one we're looking for. Well, it doesn't take too long before John begins to doubt. I was like, I don't know. It's not what I was expecting. Is Jesus really the guy? And so John sends some of his followers to Jesus with this question, are you really the one? And here's how Jesus responds to John's followers. He says this. He says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. He says, look at, what, look at what's going on around you. Yes, I am the one. The scriptures do point to me. And I am the great deliverer. As we come and we, we think of our Bible and our Old Testament and our New Testament, we find that in the New Testament, that Jesus is the completion of God's story. There's a story that was started, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that story. And as we've seen, the Bible, the book not of condemnation, but a book of life. Indeed, Jesus is a part of that story 
that book of life that we have, that we read from, that's part of our service every Sunday. Jesus is the completion of that story. We talked a little bit about tools, didn't we, earlier? Right? We talked about that snow shovel, right? No instruction, man. You just use it and you know what to do. It's a tool. It's a tool in the same way. The Bible is a tool. It is a tool that brings us to God. Bible. You don't need a lot of instruction manuals, right? You know, and I get up here on Sunday and I try to explain a little bit to you. But just like I told that story at the very beginning of that man in that hotel room. His name was Brant, and he just picked the book up, and he started reading. And God's Spirit spoke to him through that moment of reading the Scriptures. And that happens today, that happens now, that happens in your life. You can pick up the book, the book of life that God has given us, and you can read from it, and God's Spirit will use that to speak truth into your life. The Bible is a tool. It is a tool for knowing God. And I'll tell you this, if you don't need an instruction manual for a snow shovel, if you, like, you know, if you don't need it, if you can figure out how to work a snow shovel, you can figure out how to work the Bible. You can figure out how to work the Bible. Because God's going to use that tool to speak into your life. God's Spirit is going to reveal God to you. And when you read that Bible, you're going to find, you are seeing the very words of God. You're going to find that it is a book of life, a book of life now, and a book of life everlasting. Let's take a moment, quietly reflect upon the message this morning.